Welcome to the Digital Forester podcast, where we talk to foresters about how they are using digital technologies in their day-to-day forestry work. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Forester podcast. Today, I am super pumped. I have Alicia Sullivan joining us. She's currently with Google. She's a product manager with the Google Earth Engine Sustainability Solutions. I just had to say it, even though we just talked momentarily, and she said, you could just say Google Engine, but I wanted to say the the full enchilada. But really pumped to have you on the show, Alicia. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Kevin. Nice to see you as well. It's been a long time. For sure, for sure. And so are we still reaching you out in the Pacific Northwest somewhere? Yep, I am in beautiful North Bend, Washington, which is um, about 30 miles east of Seattle. Nice, nice, good stuff. And and so as we were kind of warming up here um, and, and chatting, it's been a long time. I think last time we connected, you were still with Warehouser, and, and this was in the, wait, look at my notes again as we giggled when we said it last time, somewhere in the 2009 to 2014 range, somewhere sandwiched in between there, and obviously it's 2023. But maybe for our listeners to, to start things off, while we say you're with Google, you've been a lot of other cool places, which we'll we'll touch on. But you started off and trained as a forester. So maybe share with us mm-hmm. how you got into forestry. I believe you studied at U Washington, did a bachelor's of science, as well as a master's and maybe a stint uh, down in New Zealand as well. But maybe mm-hmm. how did you happen onto forest science and, and forestry in general, something in the family or in the blood or 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 what was it? Yeah, um, well, a couple of things. Um, One, like my family is really big into the outdoors. Like as a kid, my dad would always take us out, you know, like rafting, skiing, you know, being outside. And that was something that I always really identified with. Um, As far as like how I got into forestry, I actually have an uncle who's a professor of agricultural soil science, and he was at the Oregon State University. Um, And so I kind of knew about forestry through him. um, And also, I think I always joke with my dad. I used to go and work at his office. He was a CPA when I was a kid and I would go in and do really boring things like shred paper and stuff like that. And I'm like, I never want to work at an office. This is awful. (laughs) And so when I um, went to college and realized that there was a discipline that would allow me to like wander around in the woods and potentially get paid for it, I was like, okay, I'm in. Um, So University of Washington studied um, actually urban forestry and environmental horticulture and spent a year in New Zealand, which is really where I kind of turned my focus towards forest management. Um, Got to work at the University of Canterbury for about a year and work with some really great professors down there that were really into silviculture and some of the stuff that I just hadn't been exposed to yet. So, um, and then went to work for the Department of Natural Resources here in Washington State and the Forest Service for a bit and decided that I wanted to go back to um, school primarily because I saw a really big opportunity for the application of technology and forestry. when I was working in the woods, it was a while ago, like 20 years ago, um, and you know, technology was kind of a dirty word at that point. And so, but I saw this opportunity and the ability to kind of amplify or scale people's impact by having technology as part of their tool set. So that's what I went back and focused on remote sensing, um, specifically for um, forest inventory and working on the early days of LIDAR um, for that. Yeah, no, very cool, very cool. So, so, so you you didn't fa- follow in the family trade craft is is what I'm hearing. I, I'm feeling like I should take notes 
with my kids if I don't want them to go in a particular <laughs> I should take them there and just show them the the the, the dirty right. side and maybe they'll go a different way so that, that's right. super cool I, and so I just wanted to maybe you, you said technology was a dirty word back mm. then what what can you maybe shed some more light on that because again you and I have been at this for a very long time um, you know I'd probably say you know we're, we're a different generation maybe not to date ourselves but um, but it is true there's been some up up uh, uphills in terms of getting foresters to adopt technology and arguably that, that may still be happening now um, and yeah. that's a different theme we'll touch on as I'll be curious in your thoughts but shed some light back in the day what were, what were those technologies you mentioned LiDAR was coming online but what were some of those other things that had piqued your interest or maybe caught your attention to go back to do that master's degree yeah, totally. Um, so when I started at the Department of Natural Resources, um, the GIS was still based in Unix in a centralized database. And for folks that have not experienced, you know, having to use a digitization board, um, you have no idea how painful it is <laughs> um, to do GIS with blind digitizing. Um, but I saw the potential in GIS and I was very fortunate actually in my undergrad to have um, someone named Phil Herbitz who is like a GIS guru who taught the forestry um, GIS class. And I liked it as a person who kind of was a digital native. I mean, I had a computer in my house as a kid. It was easy for me to figure out Esri's very complex, <laughs> you know, user interface that maybe wasn't, you know, as easy for folks who were from an older generation to pick up. So um, one of the things that happened at the Forest Service was uh, my boss was like, hey, you just graduated. Uh, you know how to use that GIS thing, right? Can you make me some maps? <laughs> and so I did it and I liked it. And, um, and then I also worked on some uh, landscape visualization modeling when I worked for the DNR. Um, and that was kind of what really got me into thinking about graduate school because we were setting up a timber sale along um, the highway that goes into the entrance um, for Mount Rainier National Park. So there's like 7 million people that drive by it or something every year. And so I was tasked with trying to figure out the view shed. And at the time there was um, a tool called LMS or landscape management system. And it had some you know visualization aspects to it. And through kind of working with that and producing a final product that could help us see what this thing would look like I was really like, oh, okay, there's something to this GIS visualization data wrangling thing um, that that I want to work on. Yeah, very cool. So I suspect some listeners might be going, yeah, LMS, haven't heard that in a while. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> that are used to, you know, ARC edit 999 yeah. and random codes and, you know, right. marks and tick marks and all that painful yeah. stuff. Yeah. It, dates us for sure so so definitely cool and I, and I think you, you're going to bring an interesting perspective to this podcast because not only have you done graduate studies but you you mentioned you work for Washington State Department of Natural Resources so you have that public sector um, experience but as we look forward um, you ended up at Weyerhaeuser which everybody who's going to be listening to this knows who Weyerhaeuser is but maybe tell us how you got to to be there was that uh, you know a confluence of of rivers that created that opportunity or is that something you sought out or or any any cool stories on how you ended up uh getting to warehouser yeah that's a good question so um i went into graduate school like i think it was like two or three years after i got a, my undergrad and you know i was paying for for it myself and you know I, I was looking at it as like how do i make more money and advance my career and have a durable skill set that i you know can be in for the rest of my life so 
one of the things I pursued was internship opportunities. And there was an internship um, down in the Cosmopolis um, area for uh, Warehouser, which for folks that aren't familiar with Washington, um, it's out on the coast and is, you know, kind of a former timber community that uh, Warehouser has a big presence in. So I spent a summer down there doing GIS um, work for them and some inventory related things. And that was really what opened the door for me to get hired by them um, when I got close to graduation. And I count myself as very lucky because I think I was like one of the last people that was hired before the recession in 2008. And then there was effectively a hiring freeze for like a year. So I came in kind of when, you know, the crash was happening, budgets were getting cut, like layoffs were happening, all kinds of craziness was going on. And um, I was really fortunate that I had some mentors and folks that saw the value in my skill set and kept me through all of those things and eventually gave me the opportunity to work on um, the LIDAR program at Warehouser. Yeah, very cool. And I, and I think you were, you were there for a good five years or so, so quite a, quite a few years with uh, Warehouser. Um, yeah. What, what can you, so, so Warehouser, you, you mentioned LIDAR and again, we're probably dating ourselves because we're, we're maybe a different vintage than the, the current generation. Um, and, and things have changed. And back when we met way back in the day, you know, things were, were quite early in, and, and even then when we met, from what I remember, Warehouser was already uh, ahead of the game in terms of how they were using some of this LiDAR technology. It certainly wasn't mm -hmm. new. There's some patents that Warehouser had as related to um, LiDAR technology and individual trees. But you were in charge of forest inventory. And, and so thinking of that, um, what, can you, what can you share in terms of that program and what it meant to you and the type of work you were doing? And this is, again, putting us in that 2019 uh, to 20 or 2009 to 2014 um, timeframe. What, what was LiDAR like back in the day from your recollection? recollection? Yeah, um, I mean, it was kind of like the exciting new thing, you know, at least like uh, because I came from the University of Washington and Precision, Precision Forestry Cooperative, like lived and breathed LiDAR. Bob McGoy and Steve Ritaboo and um, Hans Eric Anderson are kind of like, you know, relatively big names in that space. And so I got the opportunity to work with them. So it just felt like this um, kind of, you know, emergence of a technology that was gonna have a big impact. Um, and as far as like what I did at Warehouser, I was um, fortunate in that I landed on the um, Timberlands IT group. And that was the group that um, maintained the forest inventory for the whole company, um, as well as the GIS. Um, but through the LIDAR program, um, I was able to work with a lot of really talented biometricians, um, programmers, um, just photogrammetrists, like people that were, you know, I mean, you know, the team at Warehouser, very talented folks that had, you know, been there for a long time. Um, and the thing that was really most exciting for me um, was that it was an unsolved problem and it was hard. <laughs> like, I didn't know, you know, I got, I remember one of the days uh, when I first started there, my, my manager was like, hey, we've got all these discs. Can you do something with them? <laughs> and so like, I opened like a door that was like a closet full of like external hard drives that weren't labeled, that all had different cables that were different shapes and sizes with different ports. And, you know, I went through and cataloged them. And one of the things that was cool about the time that I was there is we went from this like, you know, pretty ridiculous when you think about it now, storage situation on external hard drives to actually having a server that could hold, you know, 
several terabytes of data, which back then was a big deal. Um, and so there was like all these interesting problems where we were running up against like actual um, constraints in compute and technology um, in addition to the, the, ta the problem we were trying to solve. So it was just a really interesting mix of like technology, um, research, it's where I learned how to code, how I, you know, got familiar with databases, um, where I learned what, you know, program and product management was, and then I liked it. <laughs> um, so it was just a really important part uh, or uh, moment in my career because I got to like bring my forestry expertise, get all these technical chops and be surrounded by some of like the, you know, smartest minds in the business really um, for, to create this operational product. Yeah, very cool. And, and I often joke, some of us are blessed and cursed because we always look for those hard problems and <laughs> to learn uh, from the previous trials. But I can one up you on the hard drive story because <laughs> while it's 2023 now, I, I was a call not so while, long ago and, and it was some foresters that said, Kev, I don't know what to do with this LiDAR data. I've got these hard drives. And I, and I thought, it's the big deal. Just plug them into your computer. It's like, there should be no issues. And they said, we just don't know. We need your help. And I said, all right fine to ship the hard drives to me I'll sort it out I'm like what is wrong with these 2023 foresters can't handle these hard drives right and and this box comes uh and literally it is heavy as bleep and I'm like what the <laughs> heck is in this thing and I open it up and literally and this is 2023 literally uh -huh. hard drives external hard drive <laughs> not even like in an enclosure and there's like 26 <laughs> of them and, and I, I paused and I thought, no wonder these forcers had no clue what they were doing or, or how to do this. Because because even I had to pause and go like, wait a minute, I, I got to go back to my old trade craft here to figure out how I'm going to handle these these 20 some odd literally SATA drives that are just like hard <laughs> drives, but uh, right. so still alive and well in some some areas. So what did yeah. that mean for you? Like like back then you were touching it, you're coding it. I, I hear there is different, we were tackling different problems back then versus probably what they are um, today. And we'll, and we'll get to that because it's kind of funny you talk about limited compute and now you work mm -hmm. with a company that has probably unlimited compute. So, you know, Dicon. Yeah. <laughs> but before we get there, thinking of the landscape there was 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 LiDAR something that warehouser, you know, woke up, ate, you know, breathed it. It was embedded in their 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 day-to-day -day forestry business or or was it still something that had to gain traction and you had to, work with them in, in creating that that change within the company mm -hmm. um i was fortunate that like as i was starting there there was a couple of folks in the strategic planning group that have since retired um that were really champions for it and then also folks within the r d group um and they were really the front runners that saw like the real value in it and also if you think about warehouser as a business or any company that you know, makes money, they're trying to reduce costs and have better information, right? Because like, one of the things I appreciated about um, Warehouser was that it always felt like they wanted to make the right decision and they were always very data-based. And I really appreciated the integrity that came with that. And so I saw the LiDAR program as an extension of that, you know, desire to have um, the best data possible to make the best decisions possible for their business, the communities around them and, you know, um, the regulatory and ecosystem side of things. So, um, and I don't know if that's really answering your question, but LiDAR for me there was really about kind of the next level of the business and next phase of the business. Cause you know, it's like 
things are going digital. As you know, there's fewer and fewer people getting into forestry. How do you continue to manage a giant land base with fewer and fewer people and, you know, that kind of thing. So I really saw it as like a, a force multiplier in some way, you know, to use a jargony term um, to help, you know, the company like continue to have, you know, good data to make good decisions and, you know, effectively run their business. It's funny you 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 share that because that was back then. And if you were to, you know, flash forward today, one might say it's still the same challenge, limited workforce, large land base. Yes. <laughs> more, yeah. We need more force multipliers here to 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 really uh, transform or, or nudge this business forward. So yeah. we'll come back to forestry because I'm I'm dying to to kind of take all our listeners on this sidecar journey and eventually bring it back to forestry, just given your, your, your background is totally cool. So mm -hmm. for our listeners, we're going to go down this path with Alicia where, you know, there'll be Amazon, there'll be, uh, you know, Microsoft and then, and then, and Google. And so when you think about the, the fangs of the world, it's like, you know, I, I don't think there's that many that would say, Hey, I've worked at multiple of these, these, these large companies, but maybe, and on top of that, we'll touch on LIDAR, but maybe in a different context as it pertains to autonomous vehicles so mm -hmm. i'm sure everyone listening now is like sitting up saying okay tell me more <laughs> but maybe before we get there is walk us through that journey of microsoft then amazon and then and then maybe we'll, we'll take a pause there before we go into the the other adventures but how did that come along because that's not forester <laughs> like that's that's a no. different path so there's got to be a cool and it's not rafting either because i know for our listeners <laughs> it's on your cv you're a raft guide as well so yep. when i was prepping i was trying to think was it a rafting program was it a forestry program was it an inventory but 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 educate myself or share with me what happened yeah that's a question i get asked a lot it's it's and it's it's totally reasonable because it's a, a non-linear connection when you look at it right so um, going back to what I said about graduate school, I went into graduate school being like, I want to have a career for the rest of my life. What's a skill set that everyone's going to want and need forever and ever? Geospatial data. That's that was the thing. I chose to focus on forestry initially, um, but as I like started to kind of, you know, I had a wonderful experience at Warehouser. It was a great company to work for, but it was um, at the time very flat structured and I didn't see a lot of opportunity to move up and develop into the kind of leadership roles that I wanted to get into. So at the same time, I also met my now husband who is a geologist and he is very literally tied to the ground <laughs> in the Seattle area. <laughs> so I kind of had this decision point of like, how do I get the growth I want in my career, be able to have a, you know, a longevity of career um, and stay in the Seattle area? And what came together was tech. And I had some really great um, help along the way from friends that I actually knew through. Um, I also am a ski patroller at one of the local, at the time, a, a mountain called Crystal Mountain um, in the Seattle area. And a bunch of the people that were on the patrol with me were in tech. And as I started talking to them and being like, Hey, this is what I'm looking for. This is my skill set. This is what I like to do. They're like, you know, that's called program management, and you can do that at big big tech companies. And I was like, right on. How do you? How do I? How do I like frame my resume to you know reflect these things? Because someone in tech would probably look at a forestry background and be like, how does this relate? So my friend um, Jan was really really helpful in um, basically walking me through like how to like format my resume to speak to those kind of like program and um, like product management type skills. 
Um, at the same time, like the sun and the moon and the stars kind of aligned and that Bing Maps was looking for somebody with GIS industry experience and I was looking for a job. So um, it just kind of all came together through a series of like very deliberate um, actions and a fair degree of luck. <laughs> so. Yeah, amazing. And, and and part of me, I'm picturing you on the ski lift with a bunch of other people talking shop and yeah. <laughs> uh, but but the amazing thing is it it just reemphasizes you know the power of networking and networks that you know when we're young or when we were younger we always heard that network 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 and to some extent as I everyone I talk to at some point in their careers it's the network that either pulls them in a direction that they didn't intend to or you needed help and then you tapped into your network or discovered other networks that that opened up new new opportunities so that's totally cool yeah. and and so you're at bing and then so 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 again it's like we, we probably have to explain bing because there's maybe some people who are like what is bing but <laughs> bing to you yeah. when you got there and what was your mandate with with microsoft and with and, and how was microsoft different than warehouse or just out of curiosity oh, yeah. probably wow. for every company you've worked at since then yeah, so I guess um, let me answer the Bing part first. So for those of you listeners who aren't aware, Microsoft has a search engine called Bing. Um, as with any good search engine, there is a map <laughs> that goes along with it. Um, so I was hired to basically be um, like the geodata program manager. And what that meant was like the way that Bing Maps was built at the time was that we acquired a bunch or purchase data or license data from here technologies and a bunch of other people put it through our proprietary blender and you know created our map out of it and that's what you saw presented was this mishmash of um you know here data plus other stuff and my um charter was to basically think about what's the new things that our customers would want to see um and figure out how to like source the data and get it through our pipeline and make sure it was you know um repeatable and then the other part of my job which was fascinating but also very hard was um handling customer complaints or what we call dissatisfaction or desat reports in the industry so you open your little text box and you're like hey bing maps you're totally missing my house what the heck it would go somewhere <laughs> and i had to um I basically worked with a group of machine learning experts to um, build a natural language processing model that like read your comments and figured out what engineer to send it to. So, and also dealt with some front end related stuff because like the um, the user interface was a like, uh, archaic at best, I think, <laughs> for uh, Bing Maps when I started. So I did a bunch of things mostly related to data. Um, as far as like the difference between like Warehouser and Microsoft, um, I will just say that Microsoft was an incredibly challenging place to be for a variety of reasons. Um, and this was right before um, the new CEO came in. Um, and I think there was a lot of DNA left over from Steve Ballmer that was really challenging. So I went from Warehouser, which I had uh, one of the best managers I've ever had in my career and a really fantastic group of um, coworkers with a really well understood like mission to a very ambiguous, um, very challenging group of coworkers, um, mixed review on boss <laughs> um, situation. And it was quite frankly, very hard. Like it was um, something that I wish I'd had more like mentorship or preparation for because it, it, it was probably one of the biggest jolts of my career was making that transition. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly for those listeners who who want to learn more, they could Google and 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 look at that transition from uh, you know the old Microsoft CEO to the new one, uh, and and yeah. and honestly, even the transformation that Satya has realized now. Even if yeah. an AI and ChatGPT, the investments they're making there, and we'll and we'll touch on that. Um, yeah. So so with that that transition, I guess yeah yeah. So maybe I should pause and and because maybe some of our listeners are going to say, okay, what what the heck is program management and product <laughs> manager? Because yeah. if courses listening, and maybe some of them will go like, yeah, I want to do what Alicia did. I want to ski, surf, whatever it is. Okay. <laughs> hang out with people and figure out, you know, where my, what my career progression is, but maybe I should pause. Yeah. I'd be remiss not to ask, um, what is this title and, and, and what is its function for the lay forester like this guy? Totally. So um, in tech, um, you'll hear about three or four different job functions being thrown around a lot. So there's program manager, product manager, and like software engineer. And there's a variety of types of software engineers and, you know, customer facing backend, you know, I won't go into all that, but depending on the company you're working for, program and product management can be very similar or vastly different. At Microsoft, the program manager, and they were the the, um, company that originated this role in tech back in the day, was like, the person that would interface with customers um, and kind of understand what their requirements are, and then also work with the development teams, the engineers to be like, hey, our customer said they need a widget that does X, Y, and Z. Can you guys build this? (laughs) And then work with them to figure out like, you know, the engineer comes and says, hey, uh, widget X, Y, Z, we can't quite do that, but we could do this other thing then going and having a conversation with the customer and being like, hey, like we actually can't do this and here's why and we think this will be better. So it's basically, you can think of it as like the customer facing um, person who's really understanding like the business requirements, the use case, like what do you wanna do with this thing? What is it that you want? Why do you want it? How do you measure your success? And then working with the technical teams to build it. Um, And a lot of times like it, at Google in particular, there's kind of a trifecta of folks. Um, the product manager who's that customer facing role, the program manager who is like helping kind of wrangle all the things. <laughs> like you got to work with a variety of teams. You've got, you know, a bunch of different deadlines. Maybe there's touch points across organization. And then an engineering manager who's working with the technical team to build the stuff. So between the product, program, and engineering manager, those are the folks that are like working to build a thing. Um, cool. That makes sense. Yeah, for sure. No, absolutely. That's that's a great ex- explanation for sure. And and so thinking of that, you, you're at Microsoft and then you ended up at Amazon working mm-hmm. on, I believe, the last mile logistics maps, which I'm assuming is maps of the last mile, which historically <laughs> were the hardest thing. Or am I totally oversimplifying that initiative that you were that product manager again on but what can you tell us about that and i just i find it fascinating because again you know forrester warehouser microsoft you know and then we're going to amazon and we haven't even got to where you are now yet there's still two more pit stops along <laughs> that i'm dying to learn more about but yeah how did you end up at amazon now like was this was this a camping trip now with other people <laughs> and had a conversation or, or what happened um so again my network um uh, there was a person that I met when I worked at Microsoft who was kind of the one of the shining, um, you know, 
beacons that I like gravitated towards that, you know, was a very kind person and super helpful. Um, he ended up actually going to Amazon's primary um, initiative, which is the uh, drone delivery thing that you've most people have probably heard about in some form or another um, over the years. Um, and he connected me to the last mile team um, because they were looking for someone who understood geospatial data, which you're going to see the theme <laughs> you know, following me here, um, to help build a map that could be used by delivery drivers to get packages to your house. Excuse me. Um, the last mile is like the name of an organization within Amazon Logistics. Um, and yeah, it, it speaks to the, from the um, kind of, uh, warehouse to the final delivery um, and, and talking about that. So we were trying to figure out how to build a map so that um, we didn't have to like continue to pay for map data. Um, and it there's a really interesting sidebar that goes off that I'm not sure exactly how much I can talk about, but um, Amazon and some of the other um, big companies have gotten heavily invested in OpenStreetMap. And this project was one of the um, uh, original um, kind of participants in that uh, realm. And a bunch of things grew out of that, that, you know, you can see now in Facebook's in, or Meta's involvement, um, uh, Grab, Lyft, um, a bunch of other companies that have, you know, chosen to um, invest time and resources into OpenStreetMap. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I guess I never thought about that. You know, Microsoft had big maps, Google had Google Maps, and Amazon had Nothing. I, and, and so, yeah, yeah. I see that as a, a gap. And it also makes me think back to maybe one of Esri's users conference where, um, you know, Jack Danger was talking. I remember he was talking about <clears throat> within the Internet itself, having different um, winners and losers. And, and one was around, you know, the geo side of things and who would win that part of the Internet operating system versus the other pieces. And yeah, I never thought about that. That was quite quite fascinating. So, so you were there at Amazon for a short stint, and I guess I guess you took another trip and 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 tapped into your network. Um, yeah. But you kind of you ended up at Google on the day, geodata engineering side, which again, if folks who are listening haven't connected yet the the <laughs> unifying thread of of geospatial data, then 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 we'll both Alicia and I will tell you yes it's important it's a fascinating space and and I think even back in our day there was some study that was commissioned that had flagged that as at, at being one of those unique uh value propositions of where you should focus your energies back in the mm -hmm. day but now you ended up at Google what happened there yeah so um to uh to to follow along with my network as well um this time I was at a conference for there's a um a group here called the um, uh, NWAC Northwest Avalanche Center, and they host a um, an annual like snow safety. Um, you know, come and talk to other people who are backcountry skiers. And a friend of mine uh, and I went, and she introduced me to a friend of hers who is an engineer at Google. And through that relationship, I was able to um, come in and and interview. And Google was always kind of the the goal, you know, I mean, when I left Warehouser, if, if someone had told me that I would get a chance to work at Google, um, I would have told them they're completely nuts. Um, and, and like, um, but it was always kind of like, you know, if I'm going to work in digital, uh, you know, consumer facing map data, that's it. <laughs> you know, that's the one, you know, clearly the industry leader. 
Um, so I went there and uh, there's a great team in Seattle that works on um, developing like data for the map that you see on, you know, googlemaps.com or the, the data that also gets served out through like our um, Google Maps platform, which is the APIs and SDKs. And do I need to explain APIs and SDKs real quick or? You probably um, should, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so APIs and SDKs are um, developer tools. So if you think about like, if you go to like airbnb.com and you see there's a Google map there and they're showing you where your Airbnbs are, it's all the tools that are used by a developer to create that map experience um, on the internet or on a mobile device. Um, so I was working on um, producing data from algorithms. And what that means is, for example, um, Google drives these Street View cars and we get this great corpus of um, 360 imagery and we can do fun things like run machine learning on them to read the um, signs of businesses and add you know, businesses to the map. Um, one of the things that I was that I transitioned into was um, this, there was a very visionary engineer that I worked with um, who saw that Google had this opportunity to really expand um, their footprint for the map in emerging markets. And what I mean by that is like, if you think about um, Africa, Southeast Asia, um, places in like India, Pakistan, um, there are billions of people in these places um, that are going to be uh, mobile first users, meaning that those countries just skipped the whole like wired telephone system and went straight to mobile devices. And so folks are getting onto primarily Android devices. Um, and, you know, that's their interaction with the internet, with the world, etc. And Google um, had done some work in these countries, but hadn't done like the same degree of work like in the US. So what we did was um, really focus on these large cities around the world that maybe didn't have like as in-depth of map data and built the maps for those cities and we tried as much as we could to use algorithms because we wanted to again scale have this force multiplier use things like aerial imagery etc um to to derive um interesting things yeah yeah and it's amazing the technologies like we're still talking about geospatial data maps, mm -hmm. airborne LiDAR imagery, and, and it's things that we use in, in forestry. And, and it's fascinating. In 37 minutes, we're still talking about your, your life journey. And, and I promise our listeners, I will I will bring the conversation back <laughs> moment. But, yeah. but maybe before we get to the Google engine side of things, Carmera. Mm -hmm. and what? Again, I, I sound like a broken record. What happened there? Because now we're <laughs> going to autonomous vehicles and LiDAR. So I, I'm dying now to know what, what the story here is. Yeah. So again, going back to my network, um, the person that actually hired me at Amazon um, went to Carmera and um, recruited me to join, and as well as several of the other people that I had worked with at Amazon. So there was some really talented like geospatial scientists um, that were at Amazon working on the problem there that were, you know, brought into Carmera. And at the time, this was like 2019, I think. And, you know, going back, if we can remember pre-pandemic, like autonomous vehicles in 2019 were like all the thing, right? It was going to change the world, all the stuff, right? So I was kind of at a point in my career where I was interested in trying a smaller company. I was interested in being a bit more in a kind of greenfield space. 
And um, the other thing that was really cool about the opportunity is that I get to work with LiDAR again. Instead of aerial LiDAR, it was terrestrial LiDAR mounted on a car, driving around, and then trying to derive maps from that. And, you know, and working in a startup has a different um, pace, has a different exposure to things. Um, got to work with some really interesting customers, do a lot of different things that I wouldn't have gotten to do at a big company. Um, so yeah, it was it was an interesting experience and like definitely like pretty far from forestry, obviously, but um, a lot of the concepts are the same. It's geodata, you know, terrestrial systems and LIDAR. I'd seen some of that when I was at Warehouser and, you know, had kind of kept up on the industry. So it's again, you know, like the, the skills that you have for using uh, or doing geospatial analytics and forestry are really applicable anywhere. It's the same technologies applied to a different problem space. For sure. Well, I, I, I used to joke with a lot of people where, who would ask, uh, you know, what we did and, and, and what's special about it. And I, I would say it's a point line polygon. I don't care about fire <laughs> yeah. hydrant, you know, uh, you know, a house, what I, like, it could be a polygon, it could be a point. It don't matter to me. It's, it, it's kind of potatoes, potatoes. But mm -hmm. in that amazing career journey, and again, for our viewers, if you're seeing Alicia, she's, she's not, you know, end of career, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> lots of years obviously to go so amazing to see where you are now and it's almost like as I looked at your journey you kind of have come full circle because now you're back at the dream job with Google mm -hmm. dealing with Google Engine which is going to touch on you know climate forestry like that that whole outdoors thing that that was the the spark I guess initially in your career what you were seeking so fascinating journey but maybe to bring us full circle now, you're, you're back at Google now, and then we will stop going through the, the career uh, journey here, because hopefully you don't have nightmares now from this podcast, reliving all the <laughs> journeys. But you're with Google now, and again, uh, uh, a product manager, but with the Earth Engine Sustainability Solutions. So what's your mandate there? What, what are your priorities there? Because I'm assuming um, they're important, just given the state of the world, um, climate you know, wildfires and forestry, et cetera. Like there is a lot of need for, for compute and geospatial analytics, et cetera. But, but what are you, what are you working on there? Or what can you share with us that that's super cool that that's within your mandate right now? Yeah, totally. And I guess to caveat this a little bit, um, I have been in this role for just over a month. So I'm still very much figuring that out. Um, I, I had spent two and a half years on Google Maps platform, which are those APIs and SDKs I was describing before I got this opportunity. So um, yeah, so I mean, I think um, if folks aren't familiar, like Google does has made like a pretty um, significant like commitment to I think it's like a gigaton of carbon removal. Um, and so they're very serious as most of the large companies are about, you know, trying to have some meaningful impact on climate change. Um, and specifically uh, Earth Engine, um, some of the listeners might be familiar with, you know, for a long time until last year, it was um, a tool that researchers and academics could use or, or nonprofit groups. Um, last year, one of the things that happened was that um, Google Earth Engine became, in addition to that, a, a commercial product. So um, Lim Geomatics could use it, Warehouser could use it, anyone could use it um, as a paid service and managed service. And with that, um, the one of the reasons for doing that was to think about um, the impact that uh, Google Earth Engine could have um, in the hands of commercial companies and being able to derive insights that help um, business decision making and, you know, other things that support, you know, sustainability goals, climate change, et cetera. 
So part of what I'm trying to work on is think about like, what's the value add on top of Earth Engine that we can um, build or have our partners build um, to help companies meet their sustainability goals. And one of the things that um, I can see if I can find the link to it, but um, there was a case study or a um, announcement done where Unilever, which is a um, giant, uh, they call them consumer packaged goods, but Unilever makes like everything from like soap to food. If, you know, it's kind of like craft or I'm not sure what the Canadian <laughs> aspect would be, but um, giant company, they source um, palm oil from, you know, uh, places in, in like Indonesia, et cetera. And they're very concerned about um, removing deforestation um, from their palm oil supply chain and other commodities. So they worked with um, a partner called NGIS, which is based in Australia and built um, a product called Tracemark, which is something that um, other folks can use um, to help them kind of see like where those farms were, where their supply was coming from and be able to see if there was deforestation happening um, as a result of, you know, growth of palm oil and also just be able to give them a more um, transparency into their supply chain. So that's that's an example. Um, there are other areas that you know we're interested in looking into, and obviously, like um, I don't know if this group would necessarily be uh, familiar with it, but the, the the European Union has been leading the way in a lot of the kind of climate um, accountability and reporting aspects. Like there was just a, uh, a piece of legislation passed at the beginning of this year that says that you have to prove all the way down to the farm level that the um, commodities that you're sourcing to make your product are not causing deforestation. So if you think about that from a geospatial perspective, there's a whole lot of um, opportunity there and it's going to be a regulatory requirement. So um, part of you know, what I'm thinking about is how can we help you know, companies that are complying with this regulation, um, you know, get the information they need to, to meet those metrics, et cetera. Yeah, that's crazy cool, like an amazing role, but also, also sounds very challenging challenging and trying to figure out what what are those priorities and and where you should invest your time and maybe your team's time or or google's time in in some of these some of these these things and and so thinking of like google engine and and you mentioned it like again a lot of the researchers i know it, it, historically i guess it was a free free thing for researchers to use and now it's it's commercially available and even then I think when we played around with it, like it wasn't it wasn't you know cost prohibitive by any means in terms of gaining gaining access. But thinking of the landscape, you know, as a forester, what would your recommendation be? Because again, you're you're in this unique position where you were a forester and like you know many moons yeah. ago. Are there any pro tips you would give to the foresters today? And in, in because some of the problems the foresters are are facing, truthfully, haven't I would argue have changed. Or maybe evolved. I wouldn't say mm -hmm. they've really moved um, that much forward. So, so in light of that, thinking of large volume compute, data processing, all that jazz, how can Google Engine help foresters today in in, in some of those those uh, scenarios? Or how can you envision Google Engine helping them based on you being a forester by training? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, Earth Engine is really. Um... An incredible product um, in that it I think one of the benefits and I saw this you know even when it was first released like 10 years ago I think 
is that um, there is a data catalog that is accessible that gives you a very wide view, you know, Landsat, Sentinel, all these kinds of, um, you know, like very uh, mid-resolution, you know, to low resolution, but gives you a landscape level um, view. So I think from a forestry perspective, Earth Engine could be really helpful there. Um, and also like as foresters start to look, you know, maybe down at the, maybe their management block level, you know, thinking about how they could bring in their high resolution imagery to use, you know, some of these like remote sensing algorithms on. Because one of the things about Earth Engine is that you can write, you know, uh, calculations for NDVI or, you know, whatever thing you want to like pull out of um, imagery. And, and if you have access to higher resolution imagery, that's something you can bring into Earth Engine and, and use the compute power against. So you maybe you're not having to like, and I don't know if this is true anymore. I mean, my experience is a little dated, but you're not having to um, get a giant hard drive for your desktop and, you know, kick something off and hope it runs. <laughs> you know, you can use uh, <clears throat> Earth Engine or something like that, where, you know, the the real one of the real benefits is, is that Google's infrastructure is handing the, handling the compute and how it's being broken up and how it's being run. And you don't have to, you know, hope and pray that your, you know, batch job on ArcGIS crashes, you know, doesn't crash or something like that. Um, so I think for foresters, like, I think really thinking about the <clears throat> imagery assets that they have and how and what insights they want to get out of them and thinking about Earth Engine as, you know, a piece of that toolbox that could be used to help derive those insights that they need to make their uh, management decisions. Yeah, this would be sure. interesting. Yeah, for sure. And no, times have not changed. The batch job still fails uh, for some <laughs> with a 9999 error or something of, of that. <laughs> Um, so, so I'm sure there's some of us listeners laughing because they they get those codes, and others will be just wondering what what are they talking about. But inside, <laughs> um, so very yeah. cool on that front. And and so given your your experience where you are today, and I know you're just a month into the job there, so so it's still for our listeners hot off the press. What Alicia Sullivan's thinking, um, but lots of room to figure out where you want to take um, take your ideas and innovations going forward. But maybe. Given your awareness, well, your network, obviously, the awareness of what's happening in the tech scene, because you're obviously living it, breathing it every single day to a different level than maybe some of us can appreciate. Um, what are some of those things that gets you excited, like from a technology point of view? Because like you're touching and living like the latest and the greatest, the bleeding edge side of things. But what are some of the ones that 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 you're following now that that gets you up in the morning and, or maybe is influencing your current thinking. Is there anything that that's uh, super cool? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think everyone's talking about like the BARD and chat GPT and large language models and those things. And, and those are very cool. And I think used in, and I'm going to like say, this is absolutely my opinion, nothing to do with Google um, used in the right, applications can be, you know, going back to force multipliers, something really important. And I think about, um, you know, someone being able to say, hey, you know, Bard, um, can you uh, write me an Earth Engine script that, you know, calculates NDVI and tree height um, between, you know, April 2022 and April of 2023 and put it in this uh, GCS storage bucket and have a conversation like that and have the script be generated. It changes the, um, the barrier to entry um, to using some of these tools, which I think is actually really cool. Um, 
The other thing I think about um, is the attention right now that is on um, climate tech and climate tech, I think is like a fancy way to say like information about the natural world, <laughs> um, you know, solutions for uh, solving climate change, et cetera. And I think foresters and people that are in the natural sciences, you know, geology, et cetera, have a really unique place in that, in that these companies are primarily um, very well-intended, motivated technology specialists that don't have a science background or don't have the specialty in forestry, you know, like um, geology, um, water resources, et cetera. And so I do think there's a real need for folks who do have those expertises in the scientists in the sciences to um, work with these companies, because I think you, you know, you bring the kind of the, the science and on the ground know-how to people who can translate that into a technology product that hopefully makes your job <laughs> as the person on the ground um, even more impactful. And so I think there is like a real need for a conversation to be had amongst, um, you know, on the ground practitioners and natural resources and these startups and big companies that are focusing on climate tech. Um, because I feel like if there isn't a conversation, there will be things missed in both directions. Um, and so I, my impression from my time in forestry is there was always a bit of a distrust of, you know, the tech folks or the, the people that sat in the office or, you know, whatever. And, and I, I can completely appreciate where that comes from, but I would challenge folks on this call or on this listening to this podcast to really think about them as allies and how to find common ground such that you both can achieve the things that um, need to happen for the end goal of, you know, more sustainable forest management, uh, better climate outcomes, um, you know, the carbon markets, <laughs> helping sort that out, because I do think things like that are very important and need expertise that maybe aren't, isn't there right now. Yeah, in no, it's an interesting, interesting point. And, um, you know, you're absolutely right that often even today with organizations, it's always, you know, IT is loved or IT is despised to the nth degree. And, and really, it's you, you got to learn to coexist and, and and work together as as one team. So it's interesting from that point of view. Um, I wanted to kind of maybe get your thoughts um, on maybe a different angle. And 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 the reason I'm I'm kind of pausing is I know on your LinkedIn profile the diversity inclusion side of things is is something that's mm -hmm. important. And truthfully, on this podcast. Uh, there's there have not been very many women that I've been able to tap into as foresters and and even you know we go to events or when you used to go to the forestry events or maybe you will in your new role just to 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 pop and say hi and, and you look around the room it's at least in North America it's still a lot of you know white Caucasian men in their probably now late 60s type of thing yeah. um, but especially for like a woman who's obviously been successful in her career um, in technology which again historically is that a bro culture whether you want to pull the silicon valley all this stuff um mm -hmm. to the forefront but what has your experience been has it has it i know you've mentioned mentor strong mentorship and and maybe a couple speed bumps but why is diversity and inclusion so important to you are there certain uh points in your career that you just realize it's critical and you want to look at giving back or or, or do you just want more views around there at the table or breaking the glass? 
Um, what does diversity inclusion mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, and this I would attribute, you know, to directly my time in tech, because to your point, you know, in forestry, not because I think anyone's like intentionally doing this, but there isn't a lot of diversity in forestry. Um, I think it's, I don't know why exactly that is, but it is. Um, when I got into tech, I had uh, exposure to a lot more different kinds of people in all dimensions. And one of the things I realized is that the quality of ideas, the quality of solutions, the um, quality of interactions can really be um, amplified by different points of view. And there's, and when those, when people work collaboratively that have different life experiences, different backgrounds, different skill sets, you get a much um, fuller picture and um, fuller, you know, uh, solution space, I guess. Um, because, you know, like I have my background, you have your background, you're going to see something differently than I will. And I think when we can actually like get all those ideas out, you end up with something better that's probably more representative of your actual user base than if it's people who, you know, have similar backgrounds that, you know, similar life experiences, et cetera. So I, I, I saw the value in it and saw why, you know, tech was able to do some really innovative things because they were are bringing people from all over the world, different backgrounds, different skill sets. Um, in addition to that, one of the reasons why it's important is that um, I struggled in my career, especially um, like when I got into tech with finding mentors and people that aligned with my values. And um, so I think it's important for me personally to give back because, um, you know, I, I struggled and there were people that helped me. And I think that it's important that, you know, I do the same. <laughs> um, and it's, it's also really important that, you know, like uh, for me to think about including um, or having a safe space for people to feel like they can walk into um, an environment and contribute because it is intimidating, or at least it was for me, you know, to walk into my job at Warehouser and almost everybody's my dad's age and, um, you know, it just was intimidating. <laughs> like, um, so it's important, I think, to bring more people of different backgrounds and different perspectives in because I think you just get a better environment and product out of, you know, the other side. And also I feel like uh, there's, you know, going back to the forestry um, challenge with like getting folks into the industry, like I think it needs to be more inclusive and supportive because there needs to be a wider base of people to pull from. Otherwise, everyone's going to retire and no one's going to be backfilling. So it has to be, I think that, you know, we as professionals in this age group and maybe a little bit younger really need to be looking at, you know, what are the things that we put up with <laughs> to get here that, you know, we would want to maybe make easier for someone else or remove? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, and, I, and I know some forestry companies are have even gone so explicit that they have purpose built, like, talent management programs where they're picking the brightest of the brightest and, and putting them in these programs and moving them through in the hopes of maybe blasting through some some barriers that you know some of us may never hear which reminds me like more diversity is actually key because i remember there was a meeting way back where i talked about Z values and lidar then at the end of the hour talk someone said like this Z thing what are you talking about this Z thing? <laughs> Oh, crap, I'm in the US, the Z thing. Oh, the Z. <laughs> I can't believe for 60 minutes, 
I lost someone because I was Canadianizing my my Z to Z, but something is sure. that maybe if there's a bunch of us, then it would have it would have been more more apparent. Um, yeah. So thinking of that, you know that that's great feedback there, and and as we look forward to Alicia today and Alicia back when you started, any pro tips you would give our young digital foresters? Because the the thing I find fascinating about this podcast is the foresters who come through you're you, they're on their phone they're doing they're doing stuff i don't even get and i think of myself pretty techy and they're doing stuff and they're just like why wouldn't you do it this way it's like oh okay i wouldn't never even thought about it that way um but there's not that many to to our conversation that are coming through and i know a lot of people are doing different recruiting activities but if you're to look back and and your younger forester forestry days any pro tips, you know, are there top 10, three, Alicia Sullivan, gee, younger self, you know, if I knew this now, like, what would you say to that younger, younger you? Gosh, well, I mean, one thing I do think about a lot is that I would probably just tell the younger me to like chill out a little bit because I was really stressed out about a lot of things that I didn't need to be. Um, but I think that's just something that comes with age too. Um, but in all seriousness, I think, uh, especially for folks who um, are like technically inclined, enjoy geospatial stuff, I'd say don't underestimate the power of that skill set because in forestry, there is um, a deep understanding of some very technical things that I don't know that always get appreciated. Like just being able to use, and I, I'm not trying to rag on Esri or anything, but just being able to use ArcGIS and, you know, go through all the things needed to like, clean a data set and get it in there and do the thing you want to do. I mean, there is a high degree of technical thinking in that activity. Um, and I feel like one of the things that um, I would tell folks in forestry is really look at your skill set through the lens of transferable skills and lean into those as far as like, and I'm not saying you like get out of forestry, but like lean into those as the value adds, you know, like, what is the thing that you know about as a 25 year old that, you know, Alicia and Kevin are, don't even understand? What is that thing? How do you see it adding value to the business? And don't be afraid to like speak up and hopefully you have leaders that are, you know, willing to hear that. But I think it's important when you see an opportunity through a different perspective, going back to my diversity pitch, speaking up and, you know, helping people around you see your perspective. Sure, for sure. And I know one challenge I've struggled with is often when you're looking for feedback, you say, hey, the door is wide open, it's open all the time, and yet nobody comes through the door. So what's your secret tactic as product <laughs> manager, guru, whose job is to get all the solicit, elicit, collate all this feedback from, from potential customers, users, business sponsors, champions, all that, you know, tech jargon. Do you have a secret trick that you've kind of honed through the years around sucking the brain trust from people that you're you're chatting with in a good way yeah i mean <laughs> there's a book called um how to make friends and influence people it's a really old book by dale carnegie i think it was written in the 30s and one of the pieces of advice that i have always found very useful is if you can get people to talk about themselves or their problems you can get a lot out of them <laughs> um so asking questions you know like like you've been doing with me like what's important to you why is this important and and really um 
actively listening and following up in a way, you know, one of the things that um, Brene Brown talks about is using the phrase, um, tell me more. And it's open-ended and it's something that invites someone to talk to you. So I think if you're trying to elicit feedback from somebody or, or really deeply understand their problem, your job is to be a good listener and, you know, like lean into those um, problem spaces and not bring your bias, not bring your solutioning, you know, Kevin, what is your problem? How do, how do you, why is it important? How does it impact your business? How do you measure that? Why do you care? <laughs> Things like that, um, where it's about listening and not about solving the problem, at least right away. Yeah, those are good, good tips. And it's amazing the example you, you, you gave. There's always a full circle of, you know, stories kind of disseminating where their origin, not really sure. But, you know, the tell me more one I've heard through uh, Matt Mockery's coaching methodology, he open sources book and, and his, his little tactic was first to say, like, Alicia, what's that thing that bothers you the most? Or like, you, you hate the most, like, don't tell me yet. But just think about it. And then, and then he pauses, then he uses the, if you're okay with it, you tell yeah. me more and, he, and it's like jedi mind tricks right like you're all <laughs> frustrated mad about this thing but i don't have to share it with you and then now he's asking he or she a coach would be asking permission to to get yeah. that feedback it, it's incredible from that point of view as we think about good coaches and, and mentors and and so as we look to wind down i want to be sensitive your time i know we're a little bit over apologies uh for that we'll we'll wrap up um obviously you're you're open by the sounds of it to sharing your knowledge and mentorship because you went through it yourself so as yeah. we look to wind out what's the best way for folks to get a hold of you is it by email is it by linkedin or or what is it uh how can folks tap into you and your network if they want to to chat more yeah, I'd say reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, send me a message um, or a you know invite request. Um, it's always help helpful if you give me some context about um, you know if you heard me on the podcast. And one thing I'll ask if people do reach out, I am so happy to help, but have some questions <laughs> before you reach out. Um, that sure. would be my one ask. For sure, hundred percent. So if you want to connect with Alicia Sullivan. Google her on LinkedIn and Alicia Sullivan, Google, you'll, she'll pop up. Thanks so much for joining. I know I've taken way more time. I think I can chat That's with okay. you another hour to <laughs> come up with all these stories, but we know that, that, that time won't allow us to do that. So definitely appreciate your time. I'm hoping to maybe at some point when I'm in Seattle, maybe connect, it's been far too many, too many years and just trade some other stories that probably, uh, we can't tell on this podcast. Well, <laughs> so thanks very much for yeah. joining me, Alicia. Definitely appreciate your time and wishing you all the best. Yeah, thanks very much. Great to talk to you. Awesome. Thank you. Bye.